you have your copy of God's Word, I want to ask you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, we'll be starting in verse 16. Last week we read about God going on the attack, God finally beginning to fulfill His promises through sending the plagues upon the Egyptians. And this week we're going to see more of the same as God continues to show His supremacy not only over Pharaoh, but also over all of the false gods that the Egyptians trust in. So if you would, look with me at Exodus chapter 8, verse 16. Let's read down through the middle of chapter 9. Then the Lord said, oh, I'm sorry, not 8.1, 8.16. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people, and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which... Which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. 
And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses." Last week we saw that each of these plagues correspond to an Egyptian false god. God was showing his superiority over the snake gods that they worshipped in the encounter where the Lord's serpent swallowed up the serpents that the magicians were able to produce. We saw that the first two plagues, the plague of the Nile River turning to blood and the frogs coming on the ground, those weren't just magic tricks, but they were instead direct attacks from the Lord God against important, worshipped, false gods of the Egyptians. And this week is no different. The first thing that we see in our text this week is the Egyptian deities... The Egyptian gods are dominated again. We see this in each of these different plagues. Think about the third plague. In my translation it says gnats. It might have a different word in your translation. But this is more than likely something more like lice or mosquitoes instead of how we think of gnats today. And the reason we can say that is because the text says that they came upon the men and the animals. Not just flying around them, but actually landing on them. These insects, regardless of what they were, were annoying pests that were bothering everything in Egypt. Did you know that while there was not a god of the gnats in Egypt, there was an earth god? named Geb, and he was supposed to be the god of the earth, the god of the dust, which is what 
Moses and Aaron used to produce these gnats. This attack, this judgment, this third plague is likely intended to humiliate this earth god, Geb, by going right after the area of Egypt that he's supposed to have control over, the dust of the ground. He moves on in the fourth plague to the plague of flies, likely not talking about common house flies, but instead referring to a biting, stinging insect, more like dog flies, which will actually suck your blood. The text tells us that there are so many of these flies that they are devouring Egypt, literally eating people up like you think about a hot summer's day and mosquitoes. It's likely that this plague was an an attack on the Egyptian false god Beelzebub, which literally means Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub was considered to be one who was supposed to protect Egypt, not just from flies, but also from all natural disasters. In essence, Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, was their insurance policy. If things go wrong... At least they've got him to protect them and fall back on. But God shows Beelzebub and all of Egypt that this false god is powerless when the true God attacks. The fifth plague was that on Egyptians' livestock. And this was an infectious disease that spread from cattle to horses to donkeys and sheep and goats. This pestilence led to beasts dying everywhere. And it's important to remember in Egypt, livestock was a, major, was a major player in their economic lives. The livestock provided heavy labor for them. They provided transportation, food, milk, and possibly most importantly... Livestock also were worshipped by the Egyptians. In fact, many of Egyptians' gods were depicted as livestock. One was the bull named Bucus, who was a fertility figure. You would praise and worship him if you were trying to have children or praying for the crops to come in with a strong harvest. The chief bull among these false gods was named Apis. And he had a temple in his honor with priests who offered sacrifices regularly. They even kept a real bull there in the temple who was supposed to be an incarnation of this god Apis. The goddess Isis was considered the queen of the Egyptian gods. And she was depicted with cow horns on her head. Like many modern Eastern religions today, the Egyptians were a people who worshipped and loved sacred cows. These cow gods represented many things to them. The cow gods represented masculinity, femininity, fertility, power, sexuality, and even beauty. And yet God shows himself superior to all of these false gods by his attack on the Egyptian livestock. God wants them to know, plague after plague, that He is the true Lord of all creation, including Egypt. The last plague, the sixth one that was in our text we read, was an outbreak of boils, which would have been both unpleasant, but also likely life-threatening. 
The Egyptians, you're not going to be surprised at this point, worshipped many gods who supposedly provided them protection and healing and gave them medical advancement and knowledge. They worshipped gods like Amon-Re, Thoth, Imhotep, and Sekhmet. I know these names might not mean a lot to you, but to the Egyptians, they represented gods. They would bow down and worship. They would depend on and trust in these gods. And these gods, the Egyptians claimed, had the power to dispel dispel sicknesses, to heal those who were ailing, and to provide medicine that would help the Egyptians to overcome outbreaks like this. These false gods supposedly had the power to prevent epidemics, and then when they did come, they would have the power to send them away. But God sends a loud and clear message that the gods of the Egyptians are not real gods. The gods of the Egyptians, first of all, don't exist. And if they think that they do, they are obviously very weak. Their practices are ineffective and their medicines are no match for the true Lord who is sovereign over all. You remember last week? Pharaoh's magicians, by their secret arts, were able to imitate the first few plagues Moses and Aaron sent. But we read, starting with the third plague of the gnats, that they are no longer able to imitate these signs. They realize that they're in over their heads, and they cry out to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this truly is the finger of God. These magicians, these Egyptian religious leaders prided themselves on their cleanliness, on their ritual purity. But in Egypt right now, things are a mess. Bugs are flying everywhere, landing on you, stinging you. Death is all around you with livestock dying and the stench awful. There are festering boils on their flesh and everyone's flesh all around. These religious leaders, these magicians would not feel very pure and clean. In fact, it gets to the point where the text tells us they can no longer even stand before Moses and Aaron anymore. These men who Pharaoh trusted These men who had dabbled with secret arts, who had tried to imitate some of God's true power, were the first in Egypt to realize that false gods cannot be trusted against the one true God. And we would do well to learn that lesson ourselves. Egypt worshipped the land and the sky, livestock, fertility, sexuality, beauty, and health. And while we might not call those things gods, while we might not call our commitment to them worship, we are prone to do the exact same thing they are doing. How often do we find ourselves today believing that true comfort and security and blessing comes from the land or from the sky? from the farm or from the grocery store, from our health insurance policy or modern medicine, from our diet and our beauty more than we trust that they come from God. We can find ourselves reading back at all of these false gods the Egyptians worship and thinking, they're just nuts. They're crazy. This doesn't make any sense. We can easily mock them for turning these things into gods. 
But we're prone to do the same thing. We're prone to trust in things God has made like seasons and harvest. To trust in things that man has made like technology, medical knowledge, health insurance. And we're prone to trust in things like beauty and health to find comfort and security and meaning and identity in our lives. I'm not saying that trusting God means not having insurance. I'm not saying that trusting God means don't take medicine, just pray. I'm not saying that trusting God means that you don't work hard to see a harvest. I'm not saying that trusting God means that you don't take care of yourself physically. What I'm saying is that we must not forget that God is the Lord of the harvest. God is the great physician and God is the one who makes us truly beautiful by making us in his image and changing our hearts so that we love him supremely and love our neighbors sacrificially. God is where true rest and peace and joy and beauty are found, not in a bank account or a crop yield. Not in our health care or our wardrobes. Not in medicine, rainy seasons, or tight bodies. We must do what the Egyptians refused to do in Exodus. We must submit to and trust in the Lord alone to save us, to sustain us, to keep us secure, and to give us our true identity. We see in our text through these plagues that God once again dominates the false Egyptian gods. But we see other things in our text too. One of the most instructive is in these these verses, in these chapters, we see a diagram of a hard heart. A diagram of a hard heart. Again and again we read at the end of each of these plagues that Pharaoh has a heart that is hard against God. We spoke a few weeks back about how God is in control of this hard heart that Pharaoh has and yet simultaneously Pharaoh is doing what he wants to do by hardening his heart against God. Pharaoh will be held accountable. We tried to talk about how to make sense of that tension And a lot of times when we hear about this story of Pharaoh's hard heart, we'll start thinking, well, how does that make sense? How is God fair? But it might be a better question for us to ask, do I show any signs of a hard heart? We can pull back the layers of Pharaoh's life, of what he does, of his thoughts, of his interactions in the book of Exodus, and we can find for ourselves a diagram of a hard heart. We can identify signs of someone whose heart is calloused and hard against God. Like us today, Pharaoh does not want to face pain and hardship. Pharaoh prefers ease and comfort, things going well, prosperity. And these plagues, these judgments from God are keeping Pharaoh from the things that he wants. So he finds himself wanting what? Relief. And in his case, he's told that relief will come to him and to Egypt if he will only repent and obey the Lord. But Pharaoh wants relief without repentance. 
Pharaoh wants these judgments to go away. He wants his life to be easy and comfortable without obeying God. He does not want to let Israel go. He does not want to let his workforce go free. He prefers to be his own God. He prefers to make his own rules. So what does he do? He begins a pattern of making promises to God in order to get relief from his circumstances, but with no intention of following through and keeping those promises. He says, God, I will let Israel go if you'll make this plague go away, but as soon as God shows him grace and sends the plague away, his heart is hardened. He has no intention of letting Israel go. He just wants a quick fix. He's not interested in God being the king of his life and calling the shots. He just wants his life to be easier and his problems to go away. So he responds in the moment. He responds in the moment of desperation, but he has no follow-through. Or in modern terms, Pharaoh is like the person who walks the aisle and has an emotional response to God thinking that God will fix all of the big problems that they're facing, but as soon as the problems are gone, they turn their back on God because they don't need Him anymore. It's still sadly prevalent today. But Pharaoh not only makes promises to God to get relief and then turns back and doesn't fulfill those promises, he also tries to start making deals with God. Start tries, he starts trying to make deals with God with compromised, partial obedience. He says, you know what, Moses and Aaron, listen, you, you and your people, Israel, y'all can go out and worship your God. You just need to do it here within the confines of Egypt. Don't go outside of my jurisdiction. And then when they say, no, that's not going to work, he says, listen, you can, you can worship your God. You just can't go real far out into the wilderness. You need to stay close so I can keep an eye on you. And next week, he's going to say, listen, you can go and worship your God. You just can't take your children and your livestock with you because I need to make sure that once you leave, I can get you back here. Pharaoh is trying to make it sound like he's willing to obey God. But Pharaoh does not realize that partial obedience is disobedience in God's eyes. There is no such thing as partial obedience with God. God is not looking to make a deal with Pharaoh. God is looking for Pharaoh to submit 100% of himself to the true Lord Yahweh. And he's looking for the same thing from his people today. Pharaoh believes that partial obedience will work. In modern terms, Pharaoh is saying to God, God, I'll stop cheating on my wife, but I'm still going to look at pornography. God, I'll stop getting drunk all the time. I'll just do it on the weekends. God, I'll start going to church, but only when something else more important doesn't come up. God, I'll stop cussing like a sailor, but I still need a little gossip from my tongue. God, I'll let you have Sundays, but I'm going to live for me the other six days of the week. 
God, I'll keep a good witness out in public and not act like a fool, but I'm not going to actually talk to anyone about Jesus. God, I'll put some money in the offering plate, but I'm not going to make a sacrifice in my giving. God, I'll bring my kids to church, but I'm not going to lead my family spiritually and talk about God and the Bible outside of these four walls. God, I'll stop posting hateful things online unless the other person really deserves it. God, I'll stop having angry outbursts at someone. Instead, I'll just hold a grudge and never forgive them. I'll try to make God reading your word a priority, God, but only when my favorite shows that I never miss aren't on and I'm not working on my many hobbies. God, I won't say racist things in public anymore. I'll just think them in my head. I won't cheat as bad as everyone else at work, but I'll still cut this or that corner when no one's looking. I won't break this or that law, but these laws aren't that big of a deal anyway. Everyone breaks them. God, I'll let other people talk, but I will always pridefully get the last word in. God, I will not bow down to false gods like the Egyptians did. I will just worship my comfort, my security, my power, and man's approval in day-to-day life. Friends, the hard heart that's on display with Pharaoh compromises our obedience to God by trying to set a standard that is lower than what God demands. And it's just as relevant today as it was in Pharaoh's day. But there's more. Pharaoh not only is trying to make deals with God, he's not only doing partial obedience to God, he's not only making promises to God to get relief with no intention of actually following through, Pharaoh also sees evidence that God's power is real. But he still doesn't care and respond. Pharaoh knows God is sending the plagues. Pharaoh knows God is empowering Moses. He knows that Israel is safe and that Egypt is being judged. He even goes and checks and sees it with his own eyes. There is no doubt in Pharaoh's mind that the God of Israel is real. The evidence is not lacking, but Pharaoh doesn't care. Pharaoh would rather dig his heels in and pretend to be in charge of his life than admit that he has been outmatched by the Lord. These are but a few of the signs of a hard heart. And we would do well this morning, this week, to pay attention to these signs. When we use God for relief and we ignore Him when things are good. When we make promises to God with no intention of keeping them. When we pretend that partial obedience satisfies the Holy Lord of righteousness. When we see clear evidence that God is real and calls us to surrender to Him. And we ignore that evidence choosing to be our own God and set our own standards and go our own way. We are showing the same signs of a hard heart that Pharaoh shows in the book of Exodus. And friends, if these works of the flesh mark our lives characteristically, then we're in danger of facing something far worse than the plagues of judgment that Egypt faces. 
Because if we do not have hearts that love God, if we have not been born again and transformed from the inside out in a way that changes us, friends, then we will face the judgment of God not like the plagues, but the wrath of God in hell. Our hearts must be changed by the gospel in a way that transforms us so that we are conforming our lives to the word of God. And if those things don't happen, if we're not born again, if our hearts are not changed, then we are in much more danger than Pharaoh in Egypt is in the book of Exodus. We see a diagram of a hard heart. But there's one more thing we see about God in our passage. We see lastly that our God is a God who makes distinctions. Something unique happens with the fourth plague of the flies. God begins to tell Moses that the plagues will not affect Goshen, the place where Israel is dwelling within Egypt. The flies will not affect them. Their livestock will not be harmed. They will be disease-free. As these judgments are falling on God's enemies, it will be as if there is an invisible fortress, a mighty hand of protection surrounding God's people, Israel. This fact that this happens, that these plagues don't affect Goshen, It's pretty amazing in and of itself because Goshen is not out on the outskirts of Egypt. Like the plague only goes so far. Goshen is in the heart of Egypt. It would be like when these big storms that are coming through are coming through. And there's a out in this field to to your right and my left. There was a big circle out there where the storm came and the thunder and the lightning and the wind and the rain. And then in this big circle... No rain fell. You think, what in the world? How in the world did that happen? That's what's happening here. Goshen is in the middle. None of these plagues are affecting them. Pharaoh gets this information from Moses and Aaron. God tells them to go tell Pharaoh because God wants Pharaoh to know that he's making a distinction, that his people will be protected, but those who will not submit to him and obey him will face his judgment. Now, if we're honest, we can struggle with this idea that God makes distinctions. We can struggle with it in the same way that we have a hard time wrapping our head around God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We live today in a society where we have certain rights that are afforded to us. And when you've been raised in that kind of context, the idea that someone not give us an equal shot, that someone not treat us fairly, grates on us. It leads us to protest. It leads us to begin to make demands. And while that's fine at a horizontal level, friends, as sinners before a holy God, we do not want what we deserve. 
as sinners who've rebelled against the almighty king of the universe, if we got what we deserved, we would get everlasting judgment in hell with no chance of forgiveness, with no mercy shown, with no grace offered. As sinners before a holy God, we have no rights and we can make no demands. It's important for us to remember that. Because so often when we start hearing about God's judgment, God's holiness, God's character, it will not jive with our thinking about who God is or about our rights and privileges. But friends, God is God. God is God. He can do as He pleases. God would have been totally just. He would have been totally righteous to have cast Adam and Eve into hell instantly upon sinning. Some of you don't like that I just said that. Well, that wouldn't be very gracious. Well, He's God. He's just, he's righteous, he can do as he pleases. He's holy, he can't be in the presence of sin. He doesn't owe us anything because he's God. And we use the breath that he's given us and the lives that he's given us to rebel against him. He's God. He could have cast them into hell upon sinning, but in grace, God undeservedly delayed his judgment and made a way of salvation. God, not because Abraham earned it, not because Abraham was righteous, God graciously made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their family Israel. He came into covenant with them and in Egypt he is protecting and saving his covenant people who don't deserve to be saved and he is judging his enemies Egypt who also don't deserve to be saved. Israel's not more holy than Egypt. Israel doesn't deserve more grace than Egypt. Israel has not earned more of God's favor than Egypt has. But God, who is God, chose to bless and protect and sustain and save Israel for His purposes. God did that to preserve Israel until the seed of promise, Jesus Christ, would come from them in the future, who would bless the nations and who would create a new people, what we call the church, a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who surrender their lives in repentance and faith and bow their knees to King Jesus. God made a distinction between His people and His enemies in Exodus. And in the same way that God made these distinctions during the plagues of Egypt, there is still a distinction made today. And that distinction is based upon what you do with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fork in the road. What you do with Jesus makes an eternal difference. What you do with Jesus will determine if you will one day face God's judgment or if you will be saved by God's mercy and grace. But contrary to what many health, wealth, and prosperity preachers say today, the distinction that God makes 
between his people and his enemies is not one that we will always see in this life. Oftentimes, believers in this life who truly are surrendered to the Lord Jesus and living for his kingdom will face trials and hardship while the unbeliever up the road is enjoying prosperity. Oftentimes, in this life, that kind of stuff happens. That's why the psalmist write again and again, Why are the wicked God-haters prospering? And here I am in exile. Here I am being chased. Here I am in this trial. That's not uncommon. Following God in this life will not always make your life full of ease, comfort, and security. The distinction will not always come in this life. But make no mistake about it, a distinction will one day be made. It will be made by God and it will be irrevocable. Not in this life, but on the day of judgment when we will be held accountable to God. On that day, the blessings that unbelievers have experienced in this life will pale in comparison to the judgment of God that they will face for all eternity. A judgment from God that will make the plagues of Exodus look like child's play. And on that day of judgment, the trials that believers have faced in this life for days and weeks and months and years, the tragedies that rock us to the core, the seasons of waiting and doubt and wondering what God is doing on that day of judgment when we are fully and finally vindicated and we are given our reward on that day when a distinction is made, the believers who have lived a life full of trials and hardship will realize that when those trials and hardship are compared to the eternal weight of glory, of being in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy forever, those things will pale in comparison. The day of distinction is not in this life, but it is coming. God protects his people from his judgment in Exodus. And he does the same thing for us as new covenant believers today. And he doesn't do that for us by putting us in a spot like the land of Goshen, where no judgment or trial can face us. He does that for us by calling us to be washed in the shed blood of His Son Jesus, our Passover Lamb. Make no mistakes about it. God makes distinctions. And you will be treated like an Israelite in Exodus who is protected or like an Egyptian, one of God's enemies. And it will be based upon what you do with Jesus Christ, the fork in the road. His life and death and resurrection bring us spiritual life. And when we repent of our sin and believe in His work and surrender our wills to Him as Savior and Lord, we will be forgiven like we just sang and we will be guaranteed an eternal inheritance that can never be taken away, but also we will be given new hearts that replace our calloused 
hard hearts. New hearts that beat for the glory of God. New hearts that love to worship Him. New hearts that are different than the hard heart Pharaoh has in Exodus. If you're here this morning and you find yourself trusting in false gods to satisfy you, trusting in false gods to sustain you, if you find that you've been making deals with God for weeks or years or decades, making deals with God when things are going bad, ignoring Him when things are going good, if you've been living your life in partial obedience to Him like hard-hearted Pharaoh, if that is you this morning, He beckons you to repent. He beckons you to repent and believe and surrender. Forgiveness is offered. A new heart can be given. Your eternity can be changed. And it all has to do with what you do with Jesus. Jesus is better than our false gods. And He demands that we love Him with all of our heart. The question that remains, is will we choose Jesus? Or will we continue to choose to be our own God and go our own way and as a result face His judgment? I pray that you'll choose Christ this morning. Let's pray together.